So we were saying that we're in a series, What's Next? An exclamation point and not a question mark. We believe God has spoken about end time events and he hasn't stuttered. He's been plain and simple when we take the Bible at face value. When the plain sense of scripture makes good sense, we don't seek any other sense, knowing that we'll be left with nonsense. So here's what we've seen again. We live in a church age that started on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, a time when the church of Jesus Christ, by God's design, is a primary vehicle of blessing to the world. We are to take the gospel to every living creature in the church age. The church age will end, perhaps soon, by the rapture return of Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4, when Christ will come in Earth's atmosphere, will gather out the bodies of the interred bodies of believers during the church age, and then shortly, very shortly after their resurrections, we who are alive and remain, we translated alive to be with the Lord in the air. The rapture return kicks off two concurrent activities, one on earth and one in heaven. The activity on earth for seven years is tribulation, unprecedented, the outpouring of wrath against sin by a righteous and a holy God, the tribulation on earth. Seven years, in current, concurrent years in heaven is the evaluation of all the redeemed from the church age with respect to our good deeds. Not our bad deeds. Our bad deeds, our sins have been paid for by Jesus at the cross. But this is an evaluation over a seven-year period of time, individual Christian by individual Christian, as to whether the good works we have done are rewardable in the future kingdom or they will not be rewarded. That'll be up to Jesus to evaluate. After the seven years of tribulation on earth and evaluation in heaven is a second coming return of Jesus. We've said that many believers mix these up, marry them together, but they're different returns. The rapture return... Earth's atmosphere, most of the world doesn't realize it's happened. Seven years ensue. The second coming of Christ, every eye on the globe will see Jesus Christ descending, not to Earth's atmosphere, but to the earth and east of Jerusalem and uh, the Mount of Olives. The topographical, seismological things that happen when Jesus returns at that return, and he will return to set up a literal kingdom of God on the earth that will last a thousand years. We noted that thousand years are mentioned six times in the first uh, seven verses of Revelation 20. This is not a figurative number. This is a literal thousand-year uh, number for the years of Christ's kingdom on the earth. In that time, Satan will be confined to an abyss or a dark pit by Jesus Christ, held there with a chain and a lid, not able to deceive anyone on planet earth for a thousand years. That will be a good time on earth. But you will see there'll be some problems even with that time on the earth. Jesus Christ will rule and reign on David's literal throne in Jerusalem. And he will suppress evil and sin with an iron scepter. He came the first time at Christmas as the lamb for sinners slain. He will come the second time to set up his kingdom as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He will suppress evil during his kingdom. He will judge evil. There will be death in that kingdom of those who rebel against him in sin. But generally speaking, the subjects of Jesus' kingdom for a thousand years will have elongated lifespan and uh, death will be a, a rare thing. It'll be a evidence that God is judging you in the millennium thing. At the end of the thousand years, and we're going to read about this this morning in Revelation 20, Jesus will see to it that Satan is released from his jail, the pit, the abyss. After being confined for a thousand years, he'll be released at God's plan and purpose. And he will deceive the nations of the earth quickly, and he will ask those of the nations of the earth that want to rebel against King of Kings, Jesus, who would like to battle Jesus Christ? And it says in our verses for this morning that the numbers of 
rebels will be innumerable, will be like the sands of the seashore. Amazing. Amazing. They had perfect ideal conditions on earth for a thousand years, and at the drop of a hat, when Satan is released, they are deceived, and they're ready to try to fight Jesus for the rule and reign of earth. Amazing. Jesus will defeat Satan and his armies by dispatching fire from heaven, which will devour all of Christ's opponents, and that will bring us to the next end-time event, which is the Great White Throne Judgment. Today's sermon is part one on the Great White Throne Judgment, and God Spares Life next week will do part two on the Great White Throne Judgment. After all of the unsaved, unredeemed persons from Adam and Eve forward to the time of the Great White Throne Judgment, they will appear before Christ individually and be sentenced to the lake of fire in accordance with their deeds, degrees of punishment in hell. After the Great White Throne Judgment, Jesus Christ will burn up the present earth and heaven in favor of remaking a new heaven and a new earth that will last forever and ever. And we who know Christ as Savior will be a part of that wonderful kingdom, heaven, forever and ever and ever. So this is the panorama. This is where we have been. This is where we are today. And this is where we're going in the will of the Lord down the road. And so what we need to consider about the great white throne judgment is four points this morning in your outlines. I hope you got an outline when you came in. It's in your bulletin, and you'll follow and take some notes. Roman numeral one in our study on the great white throne judgment is this. This judgment will take place after the thousand-year millennial uh, reign of Jesus and after um, two events specifically. Number one, Satan's release after being imprisoned for a thousand years, and two, a final battle that between Satan and his armies against the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'd like to read uh, Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10 with you to start with. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Verse 10. And the devil who has deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So what we see here, looking at verse 7 of what I've just read, and when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. So a question you might have as a Bible student is who will release Satan from the prison of that pit? Who will do that? Scripture doesn't tell us who will do that. It's either God himself or he'll dispatch an angel to look after that uh, task. You can recall with me that the Lord dispatched his angel who had a key and, to, and a big chain to put Satan in that pit in the first place. So perhaps God will dispatch that same angel to release Satan in accordance with God's will from the pit. The first three verses of Revelation 20. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. 
So from Roman numeral one, we move to Roman numeral two, which is why would God plan for Satan to be released to do evil for a very short time after God had to very effectively put Satan out of commission doing that kind of thing for a thousand years? Why would God do this? It says in the text, he must be set free. Why? Why let Satan out of the abyss at all? Well, three reasons come to my mind as I study the scriptures. Number one reason that God must release Satan from the pit is to prove that God can thoroughly defeat an unchained Satan. If Satan was never unchained and never had a final battle chance to defeat Jesus, there would be reprobates and rebels in hell for eternity contending that Jesus only won because Satan was tied by a chain. God won't have that. So God has Satan released. They meet on the plain of Megiddo, and they have a battle that Christ decisively wins to prove that God can thoroughly defeat an unchained Satan. Number two, to ensure that Satan is sentenced to the lake of fire and not to the abyss only, not to the dark pit. That's not strong enough a judgment for Satan. Satan has to be released from a temporary confinement of an abyss so that he could be sentenced by the living Christ to the lake of fire, hell, forever. Well-deserved punishment in hell for Satan. Christ will release him from a pit so he can sentence him to a hell. Number three, why would Satan have to be released in the plan of God? Number three, to evidence that the human heart is wicked and that it isn't merely bad environment that makes us rebels and who hate God, people who want to eliminate God from our lives. I mean, in this thousand-year kingdom, the conditions on earth are ideal, and persons who survive the tribulation, the last converts to Christ at the end of the tribulation, come in to the millennial kingdom with bodies capable of reproduction, and these have babies, and their babies have babies, and their babies have babies for a thousand years, and the persons born in the millennial kingdom will be born with the same sin nature that you and I were born with the same bent, the same propensity, the same likelihood of saying to God, no. And so the problem is the heart. The human heart is the heart of the problem. It will be in the millennium, and it will be at all times, including this time in which we live. The heart is the heart of the problem. By the way, when a rebel who wants to be, have nothing to do with God, being an atheist or an agnostic or a rebellious person who says they have belief in something else. When someone says, God, leave me alone, God's answer to that prayer is hell, where God will leave those who reject his son alone forever. Now, according to verse 8, an innumerable number of rebels side with Satan at the drop of a hat when he's released and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. You can't even add up the number of troops that voluntarily subscribe to be in Satan's last army to try to take out Christ. Amazing. And Satan with this innumerable human army of rebels, will have an unsuccessful attempt to fight King Jesus out of his place. 
even though all of these rebels against Jesus have lived only in a known 100% righteous conditions for 100% of their lives. The heart is the heart of the problem. Societal injustice is not the problem. Poverty is not the problem. Poor education is not the problem. Peers are not the problem. Fractured families are not the problem. Politicians and religion are not the problem. The problem is the human heart. My heart and yours. Roman numeral, before I move to Roman numeral three, you say, how can people in this kingdom have a, a, a faked, a superficial love for Jesus, loyalty to Jesus? Well, I think the psalmist in Psalm 66, verse 3, predicts this future time when it says in Psalm 66, 3, Say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. Feigned is an old-fashioned word of saying phony and the time when God's character and person are rejected in phony worship happens now too, but it'll happen supremely in that future kingdom. Now, Roman numeral three, we look at verses nine and 10 of Revelation 20 to see how things turn out in this final battle. 9 and 10, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's how it turns out. Number one, the final battle will turn out that the nations from the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog is the word for them, the nations from every corner of the earth will easily and thoroughly be deceived by Satan into thinking two things that Satan wants you to be deceived to think this morning. They will be deceived that they are better off without Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ is defeatable. Satan wants to deceive you on that this morning. Satan wants you to be deceived to say, you're, you know, maybe you're better off without this Jesus thing. And Satan will deceive you and me that, you know, maybe Jesus isn't all that powerful. And if we would do better without Jesus, maybe we should plan on throwing him out of the church. Some churches have done that, you know. In Canada, there are churches that don't display a cross because it'll offend seekers. Some churches in Canada, the pastor won't mention sin. Other pastors in Canada won't hold the cup at the communion table because they won't be associated with the blood. There are churches that throw Jesus Christ out. So Satan is going to deceive the nations of the earth after being released to think that they're better off without the Lord Jesus Christ and deceive them further that Jesus Christ is somehow defeatable, verse 8, and will come out, deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. 
So the first thing that's going to be happening around the time of the final battle is the nations will be deceived and they'll want to fight Jesus. Second, at first, Satan's army of Christ opponents will sit pretty militarily. They think they've got the upper hand militarily. Verse 9, and they came upon the broad plain, that is Megiddo. I've been there with my wife. And Napoleon saw Megiddo and said that it's the finest battlefield on earth. Little did he know. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. That is, they surrounded Jerusalem. Here they were, looking militarily like they had the upper hand at first. These loyalists to the Lord Jesus Christ were surrounded in a huge circle of troops which circumscribed Megiddo and Jerusalem. It looks like they were sitting pretty. It looks like they were going to defeat Jesus. But the third thing that will happen in this final battle is before they make their first military strike, intense judgment fire will be dispatched from heaven by the word of the Savior's mouth. And it will come with pinpoint accuracy, and it will come with intense heat, and it will quickly incinerate, burn up every single opponent to Christ. Bam! Take that. Smoke. The smell of human flesh burning. Ashes. Lots of ashes. The largest crematorium in human history. Bam. Seven to nine. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. That's what's going to happen in the final battle with the humans that would dare rebel against the king. What about Satan? What's his future? Verse 10 tells us, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan, praise God, will be thrown into the lake of fire. And there Satan will be part of a never-ending reunion. There Satan will be part of the most unwanted Reunion, the reunion of the unholy trinity. The unholy trinity. The unholy trinity is Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet together are the unholy trinity. Satan, also known as the dragon, is the counterfeit of God the Father. The Antichrist, also known as the beast, is the counterfeit of God the Son, and the false prophet is the counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. An unholy trinity will wind up in the same confinement in the lake of fire, suffering conscious torment forever and ever. How severe will their torture be? Well, I can point this out to you, that our Lord and Savior said in Matthew 18, 6, but whoever causes one, one, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and he be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's what Jesus said. 
So let me ask you, let your sanctified imagination run here a little bit. With that sentence, for one deceiver of one child, what will the severity of the punishment torment be in hell for the unholy trinity who have deceived billions of souls? You can imagine. So, having looked at Satan's release and at the results of the final battle, which will be won by Jesus and lost by Satan, next we turn to Roman numeral four. The staggering, somber, great white throne judgment. This is the most sobering, serious, paragraph of the whole Bible. Revelation 20, 11 to 15, and Roman numeral 4 is the details of the great white throne judgment. You will notice in verse 11 that the term is great white throne. And I saw a great white throne. First thing I want you to see about this judgment is that it is the very last courtroom of human history, and it is not a court of appeal. At this point, when the great white throne judgment unfolds, the chance will be passed. It'll be too late. Persons without Jesus will have gone past the point of no return for any appeal or any forgiveness from Christ. The great white throne judgment is the very last courtroom of human history. Number two, it will be the last courtroom of human history where final sentencing occurs for those who never trusted Jesus to be their savior. The throne is mentioned in verse 11, of course, and it's Christ's throne. It's called great because Jesus is the greatest possible judge. It's called white because Jesus is the only 100% pure judge. He's sinless. Its judgments, the great white throne judgments of Jesus, are holy and just, and his motives are perfect. Now, to inform us on just how great and awesome the pure Lord Jesus Christ as the final judge is, verse 11 reports something that's going to happen that is amazing. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. From whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. Think of it. John on Patmos, given this revelation by the Holy Spirit about the thing's future, he saw the day in his vision when the current sin-contaminated universe will run for its life from the ultimate holy judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. About 24 years previous to the Holy Spirit giving John the book of Revelation on Patmos, about 24 years prior to that revelation, God the Holy Spirit left the apostle Peter with insight that he wrote as scripture about this same future event. 2 Peter 3, 10 to 13, listen. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, end of quote. Church, can you imagine the consuming holiness of Jesus Christ? Can you imagine the immense destructive power of Jesus Can you imagine the blazing glory which the Lord Jesus Christ has and which he will display at the great white throne judgment event? Can you imagine? Verse 11, and I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. The whole universe will melt away in destruction before its creator and its judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's more. With that happening, what will it be like for the billions of Christ rejectors who will be lined up to be sentenced by the Lord Jesus? Maybe you have a spouse or a loved one or a neighbor, a business associate, that right now, they don't know the Lord as their Savior. If they die without trusting him, they'll be in that line. What will it be like for a billion persons who rejected Jesus while alive to stand in that line? I mean, they will have seen, they will have witnessed the whole universe melt away in intense heat. And there they will be in that line, waiting their turn to stand before the one who judged the universe so dramatically, a universe that was sin-polluted, and persons in line waiting to be sentenced by Jesus will be well aware of how sin has polluted them. It will be terrorizing. It will be terrorizing. But there will be nowhere to go. There will be no cities of refuge. There will be no way to get beyond extradition. There'll be no place to hide, no mask to wear. There'll be no way to be excused from the individual judgment and sentencing. Number seven in your outlines, there'll be no commuted sentences. There will be no plea bargains. There will be no hung juries. There will be no mistrials. There will be no appeals. There will be no circumstantial evidence. It all will be known perfectly by the judge. There will be no retrials. There will be no mistaken identities. DNA will not have to be used. There will be no contaminated evidence. There will be no adjournments and no postponements. 
There'll be no inconclusive stalemates. There will be no bribes. There will be no miscarriages of justice. There will be no biases. There will be no lost evidence. There will be no minimum security jail time. There will be no parole. There will be no time off the sentence for good behavior. It says in Revelation 22 that those who sin on earth without Christ as Savior will sin in heaven, or sin in hell, excuse me, sin in hell. Think of that. No repentance in hell. If you sinned on earth and didn't take Christ as Savior, you will keep on sinning in hell. No time off for good behavior. And most assuredly, there will be no acquittals. That shoots a lot of holes in Satan's most common lies. Satan's lie, everyone goes to heaven. There is no hell. Love wins. You've seen the bumper stickers? You know what that is? That's a heretical campaign by Oprah Winfrey's priest of paganism, Rob Bell, where he has written a book that there is no hell. Love wins. That's what the bumper stickers mean. Some of you need to take it off your car. Satan's lie, everyone goes to heaven. After all, there's no hell. Love wins. I wonder if Rob Bell will be given his own spinoff television program like Phil McGraw was, and Dr. Phil is a huge global presence. We can pray that Rob Bell won't get his own television show because of Oprah endorsing him. He's a heretic. Shoots a hole in Satan's other common lie, which is a loving God would not send anyone to hell. It's not what the scriptures say. Balanced with God's love is God's holiness, and God can't and won't wink at sin. Heavenless, meaningless if there's no hell. Another lie that Satan purports is there's a second chance after death. It's not true. Sometimes you hear people at a funeral of someone there's no reason to believe they took Christ as personal Lord and Savior by faith before they die, and they'll say, he's in a better place. No, he isn't. He's resting in peace. No, he isn't. It's a lie. Four conclusion applications to close this very serious sermon on a very serious future event. The first conclusion is this, God is holy. God is not the man upstairs. God is holy. And because God is holy, we as believers in his son take Christ's holiness by faith. We are robed in Christ's holiness when we trust Jesus to be our savior. We take Christ's holiness by faith as Christians, and then we live Christ's holiness by obedience. We must live the holiness of Christ that we've been robed in. 
We must become who we already are. God is holy. Secondly, God is omniscient, which is a theological word that means all-knowing. God knows everything about you, how many times your heart will beat before you die, every word you've ever uttered, what you're thinking right now. God knows everything about all of us. Now that fact, (laughs) let's be real, that fact either makes you glad or it makes you scared. Glad or scared that God would know everything. What would it be if someone in this church family came up to you in the parking lot after dismissal and said, all has been found out about you? Would the pit of your stomach turn over because there's a lot about you you don't want known? Secret sins, addictions, God knows everything. And this fact will either make you glad if you live with transparency and confession of sin, or it will scare you if you are living in the dark and don't want your life known. Number three, God is ultimate judge. You say, Pastor, you and believe the person who lives on my street, they drive the nicest car, their kids wear the nicest clothes, and they... They have a lifestyle of cheating people, oppressing people, exploiting people. Why? Are you angry about God being long-suffering with them? Hasn't God been long-suffering with you? So when you realize that God is the ultimate judge and the great white throne judgment is coming and every sin of the rejectors of Christ will be judged according to the books of the deeds that record them, every single one for every single unsaved person, you can, you can relax about the Joneses or the Mahavaliches who live down the street from you and they seem to be succeeding and they hate God. They laugh at God. Leave it with God. Number four, persons don't get a second chance at heaven after they die. Purgatory wasn't even a word in the Roman Catholic Church until A.D. 1170. And purgatory was not a formalized doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church until A.D. 1245. There's no second chance after death. There's also no reincarnation. A hundred years ago, If you met someone in the Western world and you asked them what was reincarnation, they may not have known, but they certainly wouldn't know anybody who believed in it. But you know what? Reincarnation, the Hinduism's error, has crept in to the West. And you know where it started? In Hollywood. Shirley MacLaine. And then a host of other celebrities have brought to the West this whole error, this lie, that you live multiple lives, that maybe you start as a rat, and if you're a nice rat, you become a dog, and if you're a nice dog, then you become a servant in a hotel, and if you're a nice servant in a hotel, you become the prime minister. That is in Scripture. The Bible doesn't teach reincarnation. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. There's no reincarnation. Nobody gets a makeover. Nobody gets a do-over. 
No second chance. And so we who know the book and we who know the Lord of the book, we need to dismantle some of these lies when we hear them. Love wins. Excuse me, do you know what that means? What do you think that means? That means that a heretic evangelical, so-called evangelical pastor in the U.S. denies the hell. Do you know that? You know that, that what's going on there? Or someone says, I'm going to come back in another life. You don't just smile and go, oh, yeah. No, you're not. No, you're not. You die once. And we who know the book and know the Savior of the book, we have to be verbal. We have to tell people the truth. I am the way, Jesus said, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There aren't many roads that lead to heaven. It's not based on sincerity. It's based on Jesus, whether you're in or out of him, whether you believe in him or reject him, whether you trust him to be Savior or you haven't. It's a binary situation, one or the other, nothing in between. God is holy. God is omniscient. God is the ultimate judge. Persons don't get a second chance. God help us. Heavenly Father, God help us to recognize your holiness, to understand that you knowing all things is for our good, that you are the ultimate judge that we do not have to envy or wish we were somehow successful with sin. Lord, may we believe the truth that there's no second chance, that not everyone is okay and in a better place, that not everyone is going to rest in peace. Help us to believe it. Open our mouths so we're not just a holy huddle of born-again Christians who are glad we're on our way to heaven and don't give any care for people we know and love that aren't. Grow this church by conversion growth as we share our faith in prayer and love. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.